The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hi, I'm Allison Frankel, and this is On the Case. Well, I think that Google and Facebook and Twitter, I think they treat conservatives and Republicans very unfairly. I could tell you that I have personal experience. I have a lot of people on the various platforms. We don't consider political viewpoints, perspectives, or party affiliation in any of our policies or enforcement decisions. Period. Nearly 25 years ago, at the very dawn of the Internet era, a UCLA professor named Eugene Volokh wrote a law review essay predicting the immense power of what he called cheap speech. Before the internet, Volokh said, you had to have money if you really wanted to spread a message. But Volokh said technology was gonna change all that. And as a First Amendment scholar, he said he welcomed that change. Cheap speech meant more diverse speech and a more robust marketplace of ideas. Almost a quarter century later, Volokh's predictions have come true in ways the rest of us never could have imagined. Companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter have made it possible for anyone, everyone, to be heard. But it turns out that not everyone is happy about the consequences of cheap speech. Congress, President Trump, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions have lately been floating the idea of imposing some sort of control or regulation on internet companies that provide content to the public. Exactly what kind of regulation is unclear. No one has offered specific legislation or even a specific justification for government restrictions on the company's practices. But Congress has convened hearings on how internet companies police and promote content. And just recently, the Attorney General held a meeting with Justice Department officials and state lawmakers to consider exactly that. Eugene Volokh, the sage himself, is here to talk with me today about the prospect of regulating internet content. Eugene is still a professor at UCLA, but he's now also renowned as the co-founder of the Volokh Conspiracy, a provocative blog that bills itself as sometimes contrarian, often libertarian, and always independent. I'm counting on Eugene to be all of those things today. Before we begin our conversation, I do want to note that in 2012, when Google was facing criticism from competitors for supposedly prioritizing search engine results to drive traffic to its own services, the company retained Eugene to write a white paper explaining why the First Amendment protects search engine results. Eugene is not speaking today as a Google lawyer, but he definitely has a strong point of view on this question. So, Eugene, let's start with Google. There's been a lot of talk about Google employees reacting with tears when Donald Trump was elected or about somehow manipulating search algorithms to squelch conservative results. Google has tremendous power to influence what we see on the Internet. So, Eugene, why shouldn't the company have to play fair? So this is a tale as old as the media. It's a complaint about supposed media bias. Uh, people used to and still do, of course, complain that New York Times claims to be objective but is actually biased. Uh, people used to complain about that about lots of newspapers, including often the only newspaper in town, the only newspaper that's going to cover certain, say, local events or state-level uh, politics and the like. 
Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes that, those allegations are accurate, sometimes they're not. They play out kind of in public debate and may cause pressure on the company to do things differently. But they can't trump a media company's First Amendment rights or anybody's First Amendment rights to choose what it is that they're going to say, choose what it is they're going to publish, choose what it is they're going to refer people to. Um, and uh, in this respect, uh, uh, Google is just like uh, a newspaper or an encyclopedia or a magazine. Uh, to be sure, it uh, generally um, uh, passes along to people material from others, uh, which is actually pretty common in, in magazines and newspapers as well. Uh, its important editorial function, though, like that of many editors, is to select, to select, to arrange, to compile uh, that material which it thinks is most useful for its users. And that is a classic First Amendment protected uh, uh, protected speech on its part. Uh, let me just give you uh, one case to illustrate that from the 1970s. case is Miami Herald versus Tornillo. Uh, Florida had a law that required newspapers, when they criticized by name or published criticisms of candidates, uh, to also publish uh, uh, a reply from the candidate. And, you know, that may sound fair. After all, the newspaper may be the main source that the voters have for information about the candidates. And why not let the, uh, the, the candidate uh, uh, give, uh, give his views? But the Supreme Court unanimously struck that down and said that that's an unconstitutional intrusion into editorial discretion that's protected by the First Amendment. And the same is true for search engines. So I guess the bottom line is that search engine results are sort of like picking the front page of a newspaper. That's the analogy. Just like editors sit down and pick the stories that are going to be on the front page, Google's algorithm picks what the search engine results are going to be. Uh, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Or perhaps, if you prefer in some situations, the op-ed page. Uh, because, after all, op-eds are generally written not by the newspaper itself. The newspaper selects which ones to publish. Uh, it passes along others' speech. But in the process, it's editorial judgment about which speech is important uh, and which speech is worth publishing. Uh, that judgment is protected by the First Amendment. One thing to think about search engines' results is that we can't, we can't expect them to be content-neutral or even viewpoint-neutral. If I enter into Google, how old is the earth? I really want to know kind of established mainstream views about how old the earth is. And I don't want Google to be neutral as to whether it presents up top some number of billions of years or presents up top 6,000 years, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, I want Google to, to tell me what's useful uh, uh, for me based on its judgment of what's useful, which viewpoints are most credible. Um, now, this having been said, for, for most things, uh, Google faces a lot of market pressure to give people a relatively fair um, uh, uh, summary of kind of all of the stuff that's out there, uh, because otherwise uh, uh, people will lose confidence in Google. They'll turn to Bing, let's say, or other search engines might arise. Have, have trial courts or the Supreme Court looked at this question of search results being analogous to editorial judgment? There have been very few cases uh, that have even tried to challenge uh, a search engine's uh, right to choose what, uh, uh, what to report to their users. Uh, they haven't reached the U.S. Supreme Court. They haven't even really reached appellate courts. Uh, uh, but the trial court cases that have, uh, uh, that have uh, uh, come down uh, all say yes. Uh, 
uh, search engines uh, have um, uh, have the the right to to choose uh, 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 First Amendment protected right to choose uh, what to. Uh, uh, report and uh, the most prominent such case from a few years ago is called Zhang v. Baidu.com. It was a lawsuit against uh, uh, against um, uh, a Chinese search engine by plaintiffs who were really pretty appealing. They were democracy advocates, and they were claiming, possibly quite correctly, that Baidu was uh, uh, deliberately concealing uh, information uh, uh, from search results about democracy mo- movement in China and related topics. Uh, so, in a sense, very appealing plaintiff, unappealing defendant to yeah. uh, to an American court. Nonetheless, yeah. the, the judge uh, held uh, um, uh, quite correctly, although maybe I'm biased by the fact that he cited <laughs> my article, uh, which is which every law professor that, that's the that's the surest way to strip a law professor of his objectivity. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, but uh, uh, the the court ruled that uh, uh, Baidu had every right to decide what to include and what not to. So your logic was so convincing that the judge was able to ward off any future arguments to the contrary? So I hope. So I like to think. (laughs) Maybe even the administration agrees with that. Because the argument that the government seems to be advancing as it talks about uh, regulating search engines and regulating Internet speech isn't exactly that Google doesn't have First Amendment rights, but that... Um, there's some sort of antitrust justification for regulating um, for for regulating Google's speech. That Google is so powerful, it's not fair if conservative voices are somehow subjugated. Um, I'm not sure I get exactly what the thinking is. I'm not sure that even the Justice Department has a an actual theory on this, but. But is there some kind of antitrust argument for um, for giving the government the the power to somehow force Google to be sure there's balance and parity in search results? Well, so antitrust law is not aimed at maintaining fairness in the big scheme of things. It is certainly not aimed at maintaining viewpoint neutrality. It is aimed at preventing certain kinds of anti-competitive behavior. You could imagine some antitrust claims having to do with... Uh, uh, assertions that Google's deliberately blocking competitors or something like that. I think that even there, uh, the First Amendment protects Google's rights, just like it protects the newspaper's rights, not to cover uh, its competitors or to cover its competitors in a supposedly biased way or what have you. But whatever you might think about antitrust law, it clearly doesn't uh, ban political discrimination uh, in choice of what to cover. Uh, or choice of whom to deal with. There's just nothing in antitrust law that prohibits that. And uh, 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 what's to stop uh, uh, Google from being partisan? Well, again, market pressure might, but the law can't. And it's the same uh, um, uh, answer uh, as if somebody asked, let's say, in 1970, before the Internet, but still at a time when in many cities there was really one dominant newspaper. It probably was the main source of coverage for a lot of topics, even if there were some other sources for coverage of world or national politics. Uh, It may be the only source of coverage for local or state politics. What's to stop it from being partisan? Only market pressure, only its sense of its uh, ethics, although those are pretty important forces as well. The law can't go out there and demand that newspapers be neutral. The law likewise can't go out there and demand that search engines be neutral. 
but uh, uh, that's something that is inher- inherently involves content judgment, often inherently involves viewpoint judgment, and those judgments are protected by the First Amendment for newspapers. I think they're likewise protected for uh, search engines. Now, I, interestingly, they are not protected under the First Amendment, at least under current law, for over the airwaves, radio, broadcast radio and television. Uh, so uh, in 1969, the Supreme Court said, oh, uh, the fairness doctrine for broadcast radio and television is constitutionally permissible. Uh, likewise with the so-called personal attack rule, that if a, a broadcaster uh, carries one uh, contested political uh, position, then it has to make time for another. If it uh, carries an attack on a particular person, it has to give that person time to respond. 1969, Supreme Court says it unanimously. 1974, five years later, the Supreme Court unanimously strikes down this right-to-reply statute in Miami Herald versus Tornillo, which imposed basically something like the personal attack rule on newspapers. Hmm. So here you have these two cases, uh, both unanimous, both come out seemingly opposite ways. How, how did the court explain that? Or um, uh, turns out that broadcast radio and television has long been treated as kind of the unloved stepchild of First Amendment law. Um, There's some controversy about that. In recent years, both Justice Ginsburg and Justice Thomas, so one justice from the left of the court, one from the right, have criticized that and said, no, we should bring broadcasting more into line with traditional First Amendment rules. But uh, the current law is broadcast radio and television is different. Different because of the tradition. It's different because because uh, it's uh, uh, also something that requires a government license that only a few people get a government license to use the airwaves because of the uh, risk of um, uh, that there would otherwise be interference from competing users. So in any event, the First Amendment rule is broadcast radio and television subject to extra government control. Control that in the past, by the way, has at times been abused. Um, and then everything else is in the zone of full protection. And that is, includes newspapers and magazines, and it includes the Internet. The Supreme Court has decided that the Internet is on the uh, side of the line with newspapers and magazines and not on the side of the line with, um, with broadcast. Uh, absolutely, and it did that pretty early on in uh, the history of the Internet. In 1997, the Supreme Court says, well, the Internet is not like um, uh, like uh, uh, radio and television broadcasting. Uh, instead, it is uh, fully protected speech, uh, and uh, uh, it is treated as... Uh, um, uh, as as protected as again newspapers, books, and, and other such media. Uh, so that is very well settled. It's quite clear that the internet is uh, uh, gets full First Amendment protection and not this much reduced protection offered to radio and television. And that's for search engine results and also other content companies. Let's pivot from Google, which creates content in a way when when it gives you search results to social media sites that post content created by other people? What's like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter? What's their First Amendment protection? The First Amendment protects search engine results because they are speech that is actually generated by Google. 
just to give the example of the leading search engine, the same thing would apply to Bing and others, uh, speech that's actually generated by the search engine, uh, and that uh, in which the search engine, either directly or really necessarily through algorithms uh, that are written by human beings, uh, um, selects what, it, what to present to people. And it presents to people something that that is, you might think of as a coherent speech product, like the search engine, the, the search results are something that you look at, and that's kind of what you're getting from Google. Mm -hmm. um, but other companies uh, um, provide uh, uh, basically hosting services. Uh, they provide ways in which people can speak in a relatively unmediated way to their listeners. And sometimes a company does both. So here I am uh, on uh, uh, Twitter, and I look at one of my Twitter and I see on the right some things that are clearly Twitter speech. You may also like, and then a list of people it's recommending. Twitter, I think, would have the power to say we're not going to recommend certain people because I don't think they're worth recommending. That's an editorial judgment. Exactly. World, worldwide trends. And maybe the maybe Google, uh, Twitter might say, you know, we want to exclude certain trends that we think are offensive or wrong, or maybe uh, maybe we think that uh, the uh, uh, number of tweets that mention this is affected by bots or whatever else. So whatever it is, you're absolutely right. That's an editorial judgment on Twitter's part. But when I go and search twitter.com slash speech, that's the, new, that's the feed for my, uh, uh, my free speech-related posts, I also see my tweets. Google is just, uh, excuse me, Twitter in this situation is just providing a platform by which readers can read my tweets. So in that regard, is social media sort of like a, a broadcast station? Is it somehow covered by the fairness doctrine? Is there some kind of way to draw an analogy between social media platforms and um, these these kind of broadcast platforms that Congress has said have to abide by a fairness doctrine? Uh, no, I, I don't think that Twitter, even as to its uh, hosting feature, even as it's a feature of just providing a platform for people, is like a broadcaster. Okay. But it might be like a shopping mall. Uh, uh, some states have a rule that says shopping malls uh, have to allow um, uh, uh, essentially people to come on their property uh, and uh, speak, or rather, if people do come on their property, they have to be allowed to speak, hand out leaflets, gather signatures, and the like. Um, the shopping mall, uh, in a case called Pruneyard uh, uh, Center versus Robbins, uh, the shopping mall owner sued, saying this interferes with my First Amendment rights to decide what goes on my property. And the Supreme Court says, no, it doesn't, because here you are just acting as a host to other people's, for other people's speech. And the government can say you have to even-handedly host this wide range of speech. Um, likewise, in a case called Rumsfeld versus Fair, um, uh, the Supreme Court up, uh, held that the uh, government could say to, to law schools, you have to allow military recruiters on your property. Uh, and uh, 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 the law school said, but we don't approve of their speech because, uh, because they discriminate uh, based on sexual orientation. Uh, uh, that was the rule of the time. Uh, and uh, the court said, well, you can oppose their speech, you can criticize their speech, but, you, but the government can require you to host that speech 
because it doesn't interfere with your own speech. You're free to speak as you like. You're free to put, put on whatever events, like if you had a panel, let's say, that you wanted to put on with various speakers, you could say we're not going to invite the military recruiter as a speaker. Uh, but you can't just kick them off of the uh, premises altogether and deny them access to, say, meeting rooms and the like. Can we look at a real-world social media example? Like, what about Alex Jones, the InfoWars producer? He was removed, I can't remember if it was permanently or temporarily, from certain platforms because um, the social media sites uh, said, we don't want to host that speech. Um, are, are you saying that under this idea of compelled hosting, there could be, uh, you know, some kind of First Amendment problem with platforms making it impossible for people who want to follow him to follow him? Uh, you know, w would it be okay to remove him as a trending topic or as a person you might want to follow? Well, I'm not saying there's a First Amendment problem with Twitter kicking him off. Okay. Twitter is not bound by the First Amendment because it's not the government. Okay. Uh, uh, and I'm not even saying it's necessarily bad for Twitter to kick him off. I'm saying it's a complicated question. Yeah. Uh, but if, and it's a big if, but if, say, Congress passed a law that said Twitter cannot deny hosting services uh, to... It's, uh, to, uh, it's to its users because of their viewpoint. Uh, Twitter is still free to decide whom to recommend, uh, whom to list in its own editorial choices, but it, but it can't just delete your account and it can't block you from using that account to communicate to, to, uh, um, your, to your readers, uh, to your followers. Uh, if Congress were to enact such a statute, that kind of statute might be constitutional. Not completely clear, but it might be by analogy to these uh, um, uh, 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 compelled hosting cases like the Pruneyard case and like the Rumsfeld case. Okay. So again, the distinction is, and it's not clear how far this distinction uh, will take people. It may be that both ultimately are unconstitutional, but at least there's a plausible distinction between laws that interfere with a company's own speech like Google search results, where it's Google that's making these editorial choices, including by creating certain automation. Um, uh, uh, that's unconstitutional. But saying that companies have to uh, allow people to, on a non-discriminatory basis to use the, the company's uh, platform to communicate to their readers and their subscribers and followers, that might be treated differently for First Amendment compelled hosting, to kind of coin a phrase, presumably wouldn't solve the problem that conservatives have complained about, that, um, that algorithms are favoring uh, a liberal point of view. Even if, even if there were a law that said you, you couldn't deny hosting services to viewpoints that you don't necessarily agree with, that still doesn't, wouldn't stop social media companies from exercising editorial judgment and deciding what they want what they want to promote right 
Exactly, exactly. Editorial judgment about what to include in your own speech and the, and the search results that you post to the world uh, or to, to a particular user or in the trending topics that you post to the world or whatever else, uh, those editorial judgments, they're protected by the First Amendment because the First Amendment protects it. editorial judgments, whether it's by a newspaper or by, by Reuters or by, uh, um, uh, by uh, um, uh, say, a search engine. Uh, and one might not like that, one might question those editorial judgments, one might think that those aren't fair editorial judgments, but First Amendment law takes the view that it's much more dangerous to give the government the power to control and restrain those editorial judgments than to leave those editorial judgments uh, in the hands of the editors. Uh, so we come back to this idea of the marketplace as the regulator, and if you're a conservative and you don't like how Twitter arranges results, then fine, find your own your own Twitter, your own social media alternative service? So, so that's right. Uh, um, and uh, uh, that, again, that's the question is, are we going to leave this uh, to, to the choices of the, of the editors and the, the, the media organizations, including search engines, or are we going to have the government dictate these kinds of uh, uh, choices? And uh, the First Amendment law generally doesn't give the government the power to do that. Uh, and to the extent that it might give the government the power to mandate, say, non-discrimination rules for hosting companies, um, uh, that would stem precisely from, from the view that that kind of mandate doesn't interfere with those companies' ability to create their own speech products. Uh, the, the power to create, to, to create one's own speech and to include or exclude what one likes from it uh, as with search engine results or the front page of a newspaper, uh, uh, that power is clearly protected by the First Amendment. One of the big motivations for this examination of free speech rights and social media is, of course, the uh, pretty well-founded allegation by our intelligence community that Russia interfered through social media with the 2016 campaign. Where does the First Amendment come in there? Are foreign governments allowed to just do whatever they want on social media? We need to be specific about the kind of interference that's involved. But if the interference is simply interference by trying to persuade people, maybe even trying to anonymously persuade people, or trying to persuade them through divisive means, I've heard people say divisive advocacy. Well, divisive advocacy is protected by the First Amendment. And the question is, does it somehow lose its protection because it's being communicated by uh, foreign governments or perhaps by foreign citizens? It's an interesting question, which the court has never completely resolved. Uh, but there is a case called Lamont v. Postmaster General from 1965, uh, which did seem to suggest that there are serious First Amendment restraints on attempts to restrict even foreign government propaganda. Uh, in Lamont, there was a law that said that uh, um, if you wanted to, to receive foreign government's propaganda in the mail, uh, then, uh, excuse me, specifically communist propaganda in the mail, uh, then... Uh, um, uh, you would have to specifically tell the post office, oh, yes, I'm willing to receive it. And, of course, a lot of people um, 
uh, a lot of people would be reluctant to tell the post office, oh, yes, I'm willing to give <laughs> communist propaganda. And by the way, it wasn't limited just to foreign governments, but it was communist propaganda. And the Supreme Court struck that statute down. In fact, I believe, this is 1965, it was the first time it had ever struck down a federal statute on First Amendment grounds. Hmm. Uh, and uh, and the, um, uh, uh, the uh, court's rationale was, we don't need to decide whether foreign governments, or even foreign nationals in foreign countries, have First Amendment rights. But Americans have the First Amendment rights as listeners to receive information. But the interesting wrinkle in the 2016 campaign is that we're talking about Americans who didn't necessarily realize they were receiving information from Russia, right? Right. So you could imagine several possible rules. You could imagine one rule that says, First Amendment protects the right to spread divisive ideas, to spread pro-Russian ideas to spread all sorts of ideas, but it doesn't protect the Russian government, doesn't protect any foreign government, and that means you can ban that even though such a ban would affect uh, the ability of American listeners to hear what the foreign government has to say. You can imagine another rule that says, you know, you can't ban this outright, where there's such a compelling interest in alerting Americans to uh, foreign governments trying to interfere with what's going on. I shouldn't say interfere again. I uh, was trying to affect American public debate. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, uh, the foreign government speech has to be specifically labeled uh, as uh, foreign government speech. Uh, so that usually the First Amendment protects anonymous speech, but not when it comes to speech from foreign governments. And in fact, there is some suggestion from the Supreme Court that that kind of labeling requirement, though it normally wouldn't be permissible, is permissible when it comes to labeling foreign government speech. Uh, or alternatively, one, somebody might say, no, no, uh, whatever the source of the speech, whether it's a union or corporation or individual, whether it is foreign or domestic, whatever the uh, source of the speech, it is equally protected by the First Amendment, including when it's anonymous. So how, uh, which of these approaches the court will take, that's not, not really settled yet. It sounds like there's a lot of room for Congress to try and impose some kind of restriction, but also a lot of room for companies to argue that it would impose a burden on social media to have some kind of requirement that labels speech from foreign governments. Well, um, the problem, of course, is that social media outlets often don't know if the speech is from exactly. a foreign government. They may not even know if it's from a foreign citizen. Uh, even if it comes from a foreign place, there are lots of American citizens who might want to be posting things while on a trip, or even they're living long-term in Russia. But They're expats, but they're still Americans. They're entitled to talk. In fact, they may have particularly interesting perspectives because they're spending so much time in Russia. So it's not clear how Facebook, let's say, would know that. And uh, you could imagine it demanding that people sort of, I don't know, send a copy of their of their passport or something like that, or <laughs> some proof of citizenship. But that would itself impose very substantial burdens on Americans, including ones who want to post anonymously. And on top of that, look, if the, the, I'm pretty sure that the Russian government could forge a copy of, uh, of a U.S. passport. Uh, but on top of that, if you do impose these obligations on, uh, on uh, uh, companies like Facebook, including an obligation to try to research that, that might end up restricting speech even more because it puts the companies in a position where they have to make these tough judgment calls, and they may say the safe thing for us to do, the thing that will avoid the risk of liability, is if we're not sure if you're an American or not, we're just going to say, no, we're not going to allow you to post these things. 
Facebook is on the hook for uh, can be sued by uh, by uh, some people for uh, for uh, improperly under this new hypothetical statute blocking right. them, but at the same time could be prosecuted or sued by the government for uh, improperly under this new statute allowing foreign advocacy. Uh, then yes, yes, that would be uh, uh, that would be getting them coming and going. So I want to ask you to reflect back on that long ago cheap speech paper. It's kind of amazing, really, how accurate you were, Eugene, in predicting the proliferation of speech. Could you ever have imagined the kind of discussions we would be having today over what kind of speech, if any, should be restricted on the Internet? Well, I don't want to claim uh, great... uh... Uh, a great clairvoyance in these kinds of things. And of course, it's always easy to say, oh, yes, yes. Looking back uh, on <laughs> what I said 20 years ago, I'm now going to recharacterize it as predicting all these things. But one thing that I did note is that uh, the paper is called Cheap Speech and What It Will Do. And its premise is that uh, uh, the Internet kind of makes real the promise of free speech. That before it was really only uh, in the hands of the relatively few who own newspapers or publishing houses and the like. And that as a practical matter, before the Internet, it was very hard for people to effectively exercise their free speech rights. Now, uh, with the Internet, it's much easier. But speech can be bad as well as being good. Yeah. Uh, that it may be that one of the reasons, uh, one of the hidden advantages of the old system, the old system where uh, where really only kind of the powerful institutions tended to have uh, the ability to broadly reach the public, uh, is that they had uh, uh, they had uh, uh, considerable editorial controls. They were less likely to publish really extremist speech. They were less likely to publish really very thinly sourced allegations. Uh, they were less likely to publish deliberate lies. To be sure, they sometimes did do all that, but uh, uh, but it was actually pretty rare. Uh, um, and and now, when anybody can speak, everybody does. And some of those are bad people saying bad things. And now people uh, are are upset about that. And I think sometimes upset about it to the point where they forget how bad things were under the old regime, where some of this bad speech was blocked, but a lot of good speech was blocked, too. As you think about um, the balance of this torrent of cheap speech versus the government attempting to impose some kind of rule over that speech, would you opt for the torrent? Or would you say that that um, at this point we do we do need or or should have some kind of government control over the quality of all of this speech? I think the government has a pretty bad track record in trying to control the supposed quality of speech. Uh, and uh, as a practical matter, what it usually ends up is the government restricting speech that expresses viewpoints that it disapproves of. Uh, and favoring speech that uh, that supports its positions. Uh, now, this having been said, there's no doubt there are regulations of speech out there that we've had for a long time. Libel law is a classic example. Sometimes they, too, are abused, but on balance, we've learned to live with them. Uh, um, uh, likewise, you can imagine regulations in particular. Uh, for one exa- Another example is threats. Threats of violence are criminally punishable, and that's probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot... Uh, depends on the details. Uh, if somebody were to propose a particular proposal, we could look to see, is it something that fits within tr- 
traditionally recognized zones of authorized control, like for threats or, or defamation, or again, maybe kind of a content-neutral compelled hosting. You could imagine uh, something like that. Uh, I'd still be pretty skeptical about it, but, uh, you know, I can't say all speech restrictions are always unconstitutional. That's just not the law. Uh, but the kinds of things that I've heard people talk about, those are generally pretty suspect in that. Okay. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. I really thank you, Eugene. All the best. Thanks. Bye. On the Case is a podcast by Reuters. If you'd like to hear more, visit Reuters.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Allison Frankel.